0: providing you with unique insights, unparalleled data, and real-time market analyses.
1: This is a very uh, challenging time in Israel and in the Middle East, and we're going to dive in that in a moment. But before we dove in here, I just wanted to say, thinking about those people and obviously showing all the support we possibly can to those people impacted both directly and indirectly by the violence going on in Israel right now. You start this quarterly Lineman letter, Peter, with pointing out that only about 20% of the U.S. economy is really impacted by these rate hikes that the Fed has been under. And you sort of say, hey, Federal Reserve, what surprises you that when you do something that only impacts 20% of the economy, that other things continue to function normally?
0: Right. Well, you know, for years, the the Keynesian model has never worked. And yet they're constantly surprised it doesn't work. But what The 80% is not a precise number, but let me just give you a sense of what it is, okay? State, local, and federal government, about 35% of GDP. Do you think they're not hiring people because the short-term interest rate is up? And in fact, if you look at their hiring since the interest rates began rising, I'm not saying they shouldn't have hired people, they're way up. Like 400,000, 500,000 people hired since rates started going up. Nobody's surprised when I tell you that, right? They're not sitting are going with the rates up. Then let's go to 18% of the economy is healthcare, roughly. And I, if I had a heart attack right now, I'm not gonna look up and say, don't take me because the rates are too high. It's not gonna happen. Or there wasn't a young woman who was two months pregnant when the rates started to rise who said, oh honey, we're going to have to keep it in until two thousand five, when the rates come down. It's not—it's not the nature of healthcare, right? And so healthcare is kind of immune. Well, th- just those two—you don't even have to get more sophisticated. You're at fifty-three percent of the economy, right? And then you say, okay, twenty-five percent of the people who buy cars buy it all cash, and uh, toilet paper. You know, et cetera. There's a whole bunch of things. And you end up with about, I'm not trying to be too precise, about 20%. What? Um, some manufacturing, a la autos, the, namely the people who are buying it with debt. But some manufacturing, not all. And all of the capital is not short term. Um, you have some of, uh, of real estate, not all. Any of you who took out a Freddie or Fannie ten-year, you know, the Walker Dunlap arranged for you. Thanks you for the plug. I you, appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, you. you know, you took it out in 2021, and you haven't bought anything since. you're not doing, you, you're not interest rate sensitive, right? You're, you're happy. That was that was one of the interesting things this morning on on Squawk. They had this panel
1: talking about inflationary pressures, and this woman came on, and she's like, "There's inflation everywhere, and it's in this, and it's that, and she goes, and it's in housing." And I was like, it's not in housing because 80% of American mortgage holders locked in an interest rate under 5% in 2020, 21, and 22. It's like their cost is not going up.
0: The cost of buying a house is going up, but their cost inflation- And that's going up because of a fundamental shortage of housing. You know, that we have like a 3.5% shortfall of production over the last 15 years or so. That's not going to go away in a hurry. So you go, okay, people who locked in, lots of corporations locked in long-term debt. They're not facing. But companies who use a short-term line of credit, they're affected. I'm not saying none. On the other hand, I don't know about your company. My little company doesn't have a line of credit. We, we don't have a bank line, right? We, so we're not affected by it. A lot of consulting firms and such aren't affected. So I'm just giving you little examples. Development. Development's affected because you're on short-term rates. If you look at development as a percent of the economy, however, it's pretty small. So I said, even if you cut development, which we finally are seeing happen, you and I talked about the multifamily numbers. We just couldn't figure out how they were possibly as high as they were reporting. And I think they're down. I think you'll agree at maybe 220, 250,000 on a run rate right now. Okay. So fine. You go from, what were we at? We we're like oh, 600,000, e- e- 600. Yeah, but it was only there for a few months at 600,000. And then it came down to five hundred. So fine. Let's say we cut single, we cut multifamily from 600,000, 200,000. It's a tiny part of the economy. You're, you're not going to slow the economy on that. Right? So when you just forget you took a macroeconomics bullshit class, <laughs> Right. Not from you. Think not from me. Just (laughs) think. I mean, I have some students here, former students. But if you just think we were talking before that oftentimes the answer is so obvious that you don't think about it. How could it possibly have a big effect? And then you add to it. Traveling tourism is still not quite back to 2019 levels. Huge pan up. Autos, although you did point out, you do point out in the letter that Vegas is back
1: and conventions are back. Because Vegas it's like, conventions are back. You yep. you pointed out in in the depths of the pandemic, you said people will come back to conventions. And they'll come back to Vegas, and there were a lot of people who said, give up on
0: conventions and give up on Vegas. No, no chance. Right. I mean, we like our vices, and and no, but I mean, there are conventions for real. When you think about it, interacting is useful. You could have all, everybody sitting here could have been sitting in the closet today instead of coming and seeing Willie. (laughs) And um, by the way, a lot of people now think my name is Willie Peter. Yeah, right. Because, yeah, you know, because <laughs> he always I, mentions himself first. And so, somebody- so I was actually I was talking to your
1: former partner of the Lineman letter this morning. And he said that he, I, I used so much of your data on CNBC this morning that I had to give you some props on national television. So next-
0: there we go. There There's we go. Right, what, time. And
1: and we'll have a banner behind I'm gonna you. I'm going to squeeze <laughs> you in. No. So but Peter, you called for a couple things that I think you got really right. And then one of them that you didn't get right. And I want to understand why you didn't get it right. 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 Um, At the beginning of the year, when 60% of economists were talking for a recession in 2023, you said no recession. Not a chance. Not a chance. You just came out with your updated 2023 GDP growth number at 2.3%. Right. Okay. And you have pretty high CPI prints from here to the end of the year. High fours, low fives. Why did you in March when we were together think that you'd be able to have two plus percent GDP growth, CPI continuing to print in the high fives and low
0: fours, and yet the Fed would cut. Okay, so this, the whole in, the the economy part is easy, the GDP part. We still are below trend. You go back to the pre-pandemic trend. We're still haven't caught up. We're catching, but we haven't caught up. That's all this pent up. We want to do stuff. And you can name so a lot of it's healthcare that we forestall during the COVID. A lot of it's travel and tourism. It's not only, and a lot of it's auto. So there are things that are pent up. That's going to power us um, through. That's why I don't think. Now, the inflation is very nuanced. And we talked about this. Is it year over year you're talking about or as we are happening? And the numbers are very confusing. So I'll take I keep saying inflation is massively lower than people are being told, and I'm looking at the same data. So the personal consumption in de- uh, personal consumption expenditure price index, which historically the Fed has said is their preferred measure, Greenspan used to swear by it, right? Um, and it was last month annualized on the core. So that is to say, as we sit here, right? That's what it was. I don't care what year over year, you know, it's like saying, well, I wasn't going to go very I I wasn't driving my car very fast a year ago. I don't care. You're driving like a bat out of hell now. Or I don't care if you were speeding a year ago, you're you're sitting in the middle of the expressway, not moving now, right? I'm I'm looking at the moment. That's all I'm doing. Okay. If you look at CPI, you will basically get the same picture, except it tends to run two to three and a half percent on CPI if you annualize. Now, they'll say, well, yes, last month the personal consumption expenditure index was four percent annualized if you include energy. Okay. Now, why, again, forget you went to any school, just why is oil up. Does it have anything to do, did the increase in oil prices in the last month or two have anything to do with the Fed? No. What did it have to do with? Saudi Arabia Reduce production. Okay? And what happened to the price? Now, is anything the Fed going to do going to have an impact on that? Maybe something the White House does, jawboning with Saudi Arabia or whatever, or whatever. And by the way, we had a little back and forth on this friendly back, which is the US has reduced its oil production because they were reacting to the drop in oil prices that you know occurred. What's happened to the rest of the world other than Saudi Arabia since then? And we're at all time record oil production because Guyana and so forth and so on are bringing on production. Because it makes sense. But you, but, but the thing that I didn't understand and that you and I were going back and
1: forth on was this. You very clearly state in the letter, 20 million barrels per day consumption in the United States pre-COVID. Right. COVID hits. We drop down to 14.5 million barrels a day of consumption. Right. In the depths of the pandemic. In the
0: depths of May of, April April of May of 2020. Right. Exactly.
1: Right. And then we revert back for 2022 to 20 million, 20.2 million yeah. barrels a day, 2020. 23, we're at 17 million barrels a day. I don't get the 3 million barrels a day less consumption in an economy that's growing at 2.4% right. GDP growth. It, we don't have, I mean, Tesla, as much as Elon Musk wants to take over the world, we don't have Teslas on every corner. Right.
0: What is causing us to be using 3 million barrels less a day, well, year to date, clearly, 23? Clearly some of its efficiency. Now that's 15% efficiency yeah. improvement year. That's not true. Everybody would agree? Some of it is inventories have been built up and are run down and the way they measure, right? So does the restocking of the strategic oil reserve count in like a 20 million barrel? That would have been part of, I don't know how normalized. much they did restock, to be honest. Uh, I don't think they restocked it. But it would. It would. it would. So, I mean, there's a lot of things happening, but it's clear that we're consuming energy. It's clear we're on a long-term trend. Um, you want to see it, it's related to this energy, this technology issue being a wonderful salvation for a lot of our life. I was reading the other day that the Phoenix metropolitan area, which is now, I guess, by population now the fifth largest in the United States uh, by by people. Mariposa County has been the fast, right. war, fastest largest no. county in this country for five years. Right. Straight. So, you know, fastest growing. OK, um, I think there's a couple of places where an apartment hasn't been built, but th- that that all back. They're going to put a chip plant. That, they that. didn't put the apartment. They're putting a chip plant. Right, th- that'll back. Chip plants don't use water. Right. Sorry. I, I. How much water? Here's a question: How much more water is used than in 1950 in Phoenix?
1: Zero. Zero. Because 70% of the water in Arizona is used for agriculture.
0: Yeah. The recycling of water and other technologies of whatever your shower is less, you know, and all that. Is that amazing? The population is like 18 fold or some crazy number fold, and they use the same amount of water. And that's a miracle if you think about it, that happened slowly over 72 years or 73 years. That's a bit what's happening with oil, although a lot of these numbers are hard to measure. It's like we had, people forget how one of the things um, we've talked about is my view of the economy is not equations. I mean, I sometimes use equations and so my view is not an equation. My view of the economy is go to an art museum and see a Saro painting. And Sorot was a pointillist, right? You know, these little, just little dots. And if you get close, you see nothing except little dots, right? And and, then it could be an impressionist, the same point, right? Right. And my point, my view is I see this big Sorot painting. And if I get too close, I don't understand anything. Even though I know that that dot was created by a set of chemicals and so forth and so on. But the point is you got to step away from all that and just try to get, the fullness of the picture. And I don't always get the fullness of the picture. You get it pretty darn well. So, But but that's the game. And people get hung up in the chemical compounds of what makes that dot different than the other dot rather than the image of it all. And the image is constantly changing. That's different than a Sorrell painting, right? The image is constantly, constantly changing. So one of the things people fail to understand is the data is not so great and is not so constant. Um, Surveys, surveys, you know, and you go like, how many of you have taken a survey that the federal government has administered in the last six months? Anybody? And, and yet, real people do it, but they have a harder and harder time getting people to take them because we're also sick and tired of the phone calls that come in we aren't answering their calls so that even if you were willing to, so the data gets more blurred, if you will. Not the fault of the government, right? And by the way, you know, I'm more than happy to blame the government for everything. I know. I, I realize no, that. But so I'm, I'm joking. Let's, let, let's you got to have it. a constant, you have to have an understanding that these things are going on. The CPI data, housing is terribly measured. Which is why you go to the personal consumption, And that's why I come down. It's
1: much lower. Yeah. So you talked about Phoenix as being one of the high growth cities in the country. Um, In this Lineman report, there are um, a number of cities that I put out there as cities that you show the growth in payrolls from pandemic forward. So every economy, every major economy tracked by the Lineman letter has gotten to pre-pandemic employment levels.
0: Yeah, basically there may right be one there, couple, or two, but, but base I think I tracked
1: forty-eight or so fifty one. New York, for instance, is forty thousand jobs below pre-pandemic. Right. Just as an aside. Right. But so as you look through that, there are about six. No, it's a little bit more than that. It's like eight economies that have grown by over a hundred thousand jobs. Mm-hmm. And one of them is the out, 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 outlier, and that is Dallas, Texas, mm-hmm. which has grown by four hundred and twenty-seven thousand jobs, payroll jobs in Dallas, Texas since their pre-pandemic print. Right. Okay. Um, And there's a lot of supply in Dallas and we can talk about how that all plays into the housing market and all that. But one of the things back to your equations that I thought was so interesting was that you have a number of indices in the letter that talk about if you get 1% growth in employment, you then are going to get a tightening in vacancy rates in office and retail and hospitality, rev par will go up, et cetera, et cetera. And you've tracked this over time. Right. But in an economy of Dallas, Texas, which has added four hundred and twenty-seven thousand jobs, that would equate to a tightening in office vacancy levels by about four and a half percent. Right on your equation, with all sure. markets over yeah. a long period. Of- I assume your math's right. Yeah, it's
0: so about four and a half percent. Right, I agree. Office vacancy in Dallas, Texas today, eighteen point eight percent. So here, that is the problem. That encapsulates that little example. Encapsulates the problem faced by the office market, which is historically, whether it's my numbers, your numbers, whatever, there was always a positive, a strong positive correlation between net job growth and net space absorption. It differed depending on the city, differed in the suburbs, it differed over time, how much space. Always was a clear positive correlation. And what we've had for the last, what, three years, three and a half years, is a modest negative correlation. Now you can sit here and I can sit here and say, ah, it will revert. I believe it reverts. And in fact, one of the challenges of reading my stuff in Lindemann letter on office is implicit, not implicit, explicit, is I believe it reverts back to a positive relationship. But do I know that? No. By the way, it didn't disappear for apartments. It didn't disappear for industrial. It didn't disappear for hotels. It didn't, dis, right? Those, it may have tweaked, but it didn't disappear. Office had disappeared. That means the risk is really gone. So in the past, you could look at office and say, mm, tough times. We've had tough times in office, right? And you could look at it and you could tell yourself, but as long as I believe if jobs come back, That's what I'm really betting on. Don't bet against the U.S. economy. As long as I'm going to believe in that, it will come back and you had a sense. Now let's, let's play it out. Let's assume it never comes back, that relationship. That makes office just riskier than normal. And by the way, if you're a lender, you're not going to step up to something that you can't quantify at all. Or at least in traditional metrics, you can't quantify. So if you think it's off-putting for the equity, it's doubly off-putting for the lender because the best that happens to the lender is you pay them back, right? That's the bet. So so that's a real challenge. You also make a point that allocation
1: of capital will shift now to multi and industrial and away from office. So in other words, someone's sitting there with a normal allocation. We want to put capital into the United States, your Audi or whomever you're going to underweight and that's only going to push more capital flows, right. which then you're going to have cap grade compression on industrial and multi and you're going to have that cap rate expansion yeah. on those that aren't getting the capital. Correct.
0: And the reason being that if you go back to 73, 74, 75, 80, 80 through 82, you know 90 to 93, Russian ruble, the, the dot-com collapse, the great financial crisis. If you go back to those, the financial markets were in trouble and the property market was in trouble. You know, and that was true across the board. It was true for industrial, it was true for retail, it was true for apartments, it was true. It might be more true for one or in one sub-market than but it was true across the board. So if you wanted to, quote, bet On, I'm a believer that capital markets come back and normalize, which has always been a good bet. The only question is when, okay? And if you wanted to bet on, yep, the economy is going to do good, you could spread your bet and include offices in that. And lots of people did include offices in that. Now, the capital markets are staggering across the board, But apartment supply demand, you can find some sub markets where it's not great, but rent and occupancy in most apartment markets, pretty good. Mm -hmm. And yes, it's not rising as fast as it was 18 months ago, but pretty good. Well, you point out that real rents,
1: um, that you point out in the letter that nominal rents still might be going up in some markets, but real rents are not.
0: And Yeah, and, and I always thought that would be the adjustment, that nominal would go up, real would fall slightly because of the difference. That, I always thought that'd be the margin, which is important for coverage, right? Because if nominal goes down, your coverage goes down. If nominal go up, but real go down, it's not great. But, but apartments, rent and occupancy, decent. Industrial, rent and occupancy, pretty good. Good retail, rent and occupancy, pretty good. By the way, would you like it better if you're an owner? Of course know yeah, rent and occupancy are pretty good uh hotels rent and occupancy pretty good with a lot, lot of upside is mean, almost back
1: it's yeah, still a lot back. of upside six percent below the trajectory if we'd never had a pandemic
0: yeah so you that's right but six percent's a lot of upside it is right yeah so and then you go office rent and occupancy yeah absorption yeah I don't know if there's still a positive correlation I believe there is but I don't know there is. So why would I, the problem is if I'm going to make a bet on capital markets recovering, it's a simpler bet to go into those other sectors. And if I'm going to make a bet that the economy grows, it's, a, it's just a, a simpler, nothing better bet, just a simpler bet. And, you know, I don't need the brain damage is kind of what I think capital markets are going to say. By the way, in the financial crisis, if you wanted to make that bet, You had to make it in any of those sectors. They were all in trouble. Start a legacy.
1: Start turning dreams into realities. A better world begins with you. Better communities start with us. What ends up happening with all this office inventory, Peter? Because you and I have talked about office to multi-conversion. You're in the process of working on a project. Morphing a right couple of projects. We, we, yep. just, we just put a permanent loan on a office to multi-conversion in LA where B of A had put on the conversion loan. Uh, it's 280 units. The cost basis for the developer is about $280,000 in door. We put a $55 million Fannie Mae first on that to take out the $45 million construction loan from B of A. So a $10 million cash out yep. on a conversion home run of a deal at a $280,000 a door basis. Good basis, yeah. Um, but that's a unique deal. The basis in, I mean, the, I think the developer bought the building in the 1990s for $9 million. So, you know, they had a very low basis in the actual building. But, you know, after, I, on CNBC this morning, I talked about delinquency rates during the GFC and where we are today. And the numbers are in the GFC delinquencies got up to 8.9%. Today, delinquency rates are about 84 basis points. Right. Okay. But I got a phone call as I came up here from one of the major bank CEOs. And he said, hey, I just watched you on CNBC. Great. But by the way, your numbers are exactly right on Q2 2023 of where we are on delinquencies. But we got a lot of office that's coming through. This one bank has about $5 billion of office loans on their balance sheet. And he said, you know, we've taken write downs on a bunch of them. We're watching it very closely, but we write do- now, written that down to about 50% of value. Mm-hmm. So here's the thing. They don't want it. This of course, is, I asked you know, them. I, well, I said,
0: are you taking the keys? He said, no, we're trying to work. Because well, if the- I've got a good borrower, I mean, good operator, good people, good borrower, what? I'm going to foreclose on them.
1: But at some point, somebody can't continue to pay their, I mean, someone can't continue to pay the mortgage. They can't continue
0: to turn on the lights. And- you know, you kick the can down the road. They'll kick the can down the road, and that's what's happening. But it, it's, it's a very interesting thing on office. The, the, I, I, you mentioned I'm involved in a couple of conversions. There's a conversion of GNC's old headquarters, downtown Pittsburgh, right? Whole building, except ground floor retail, right? nice building burnham designed and so forth and so on one of its greatest assets for conversion was it was empty right if that build, we that's not true it has a bank has its retail on the ground floor you can imagine we want that anyway right, right? it was empty if that same building had tenants on the lease for 5 years or 8 years or 6 years for 20, 30% of the building, it's not economic to convert. Just not. Because it's a, you know, it's a, cl- and then you go, okay, we're, I'm involved in another with the same partner in Cincinnati. It's um, Macy's old headquarters. What's his greatest asset? Yeah, it's a nice building. It's empty. Right. It's really empty. If that building had had 35, 40% occupancy, couldn't do it. Right. Put aside the floor plans and the windows and the plumbing, all that is on top of it, right? But if, and so the problem with a lot of these office buildings that you're talking about, that, that he's talking about, yeah. some of them are 80% occupied and some are 70, some 40. And by the way, you say, yeah, it's 40, it's going to go down to 20, not if you try to buy it. Because if you try to buy it, those tenants are going to say, "Oh, I'm planning to stay forever," and you have to buy. It. I mean, it's uneconomic. So what? What people don't real? I, I've said this before. I, you and I. Um, I have. We have no children. Um, we have a lot of children in Kenya and Germany and so But we have no children by birth. And um, I say that. As I listen to people talking about how easy it is to convert office to residential, it reminds me of my friends who have no children talking about how perfect their children would be if only they raised them, right? And it's it's it's, not—it's—it's hard. (laughs) It's really hard, and a lot of them don't turn out so well, right? And um, it's hard. But if you said to me, "What's the biggest enemy of office conversion to residential?" It's Occupancy between twenty and eighty percent yeah it it's that's then you, you you then you start looking at floor plans and windows and plumbing and neighborhood and so forth but basically you can you can scratch almost everything twenty to eighty percent occupancy is it's not going to happen in any quick time period I used a
1: as we, you and I transition to the consumer here I used a uh sort of a um a thought as it relates to back to office with Peter, when he and I were talking um, that he sort of thought was interesting, particularly given that he's a professor. Um, But my, you know, a lot of people look at CEOs like me and say, when are you going to force people back into the office? And I'm like, you know, A, if you get softness in the job market, CEOs will have, a better ability to do that than just saying, hey, we're gonna force you back in and somebody else says you can work flexibly and people leave. Um, the other thing is that flexible work schedules actually show great productivity. So it's not like you have to do one or the other, you can work on both. But my comment was that the, the next generation of professionals, those entry-level people who are working, we're a service economy. As Peter said previously, 8% of our economy is manufacturing, eight, right. okay? We're a service economy. And how do you learn service businesses? being around people like him, learning from people like him. And, I, and my comment to Peter was, you know, it's sort of like kids who would go to see the teacher in office hours. Who are the people who went to office hours? The smartest kids in the class. If you're not taking advantage of being in the yeah. office to learn from the people who are in this room, you as a starting professional are hurting yourself. You're not taking advantage of those office hours. Um, and I hope that that gets out there rather than it having to be sort of a cudgel from CEOs saying you've got to be back in the office. It's actually more from the next generation who says, wow, I'm not going to
0: you know, have the opportunity to move up. But as we go to, I think that by the way, the way you phrased that is the smart, the, the, the most cogent brilliant way I've heard that issue phrased, which is, it is like going to see the professor. I mean, you don't have to, right. But any of you who went to see a professor were better off Olivia right there. Who was you was know? Wharton with you. you we know? used to go see you
1: in office hours all the time. You're and guess what? Work. Olivia but Olivia work. is one of your best students. And one of the bright kids. Exactly. Right. And and so, and there are others. So to anyone out there who's watching this, Olivia went to Wharton and went to office hours with him and went to work at Blackstone. Like yeah. if you want a that job, that's her own, that's has she her got own there. company at this point, right? So, yeah, it's it's a great um, path. But so let's go to the consumer for a moment, Peter, because I think one of the things that I keep hearing every meeting I'm in with a client today, and I've been all over the country in the last month, is oh, yeah, but the consumer's weakening. And Steve Leesman, some of you may have seen it this morning on CNBC. Steve Leesman sat there and said, I hear all these things about the consumer. You know, going away and 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 having all these problems. And I hate to tell you, all the data would say to you there's something that might happen, but so far you've been completely wrong and you continue to be wrong. Peter Linneman and the Lennon letter would tell you they've been wrong up until now and they continue to be wrong. Right. Let's talk about this for a moment because the one data point that everyone talks about is a trillion dollars of credit card debt. And everyone's like, oh, credit card defaults are going to go through the roof. And you show very clearly in the Lenneman letter this quarter that at the end of Q2, 2023, credit card defaults, charge-offs, were at 2.4%, which is slightly higher than during the depths of the pandemic when everyone was getting a check from the federal government, but 120 basis points below the long-term charge-off average in credit cards. So everyone's sitting there saying, oh, we've crossed a trillion dollars of credit card debt. The consumer is crashing. Right. And you very clearly point out that ain't, slow down
0: a little bit. Well, there is, there, there are two things going on. Uh, two, de- two things reinforcing one. Let me take the first part of the credit card debt. Um, how many of you use your credit card to buy whole lots of stuff? Everybody. How many of you pay interest versus paying it off during the grace period? And I would be willing to bet that most of this audience, most of the listeners, most of the viewers pay it off during the grace period. I actually have not been able to find a number as to how much, but my gut is lots, lots and lots. Now, that's not to say there aren't people actually paying interest on it. I'm not saying no one. So first of all, is that not all that debt is really debt in the sense the clock is ticking people are paying interest on it. I I wish I could tell you how much. I have searched and searched and I can't come up with an answer. If any of you ever find it, please, I'd be very interesting. Wouldn't it show up on bank? I just earnings? can't find it in Flow of Funds. I can't just- find it as research study. I maybe it's out there. I just haven't found they it. They wouldn't have credit card interest income as a line? They don't. Well, yes, but what you don't know is... Um, Against what true balance, right. Against what true balance is the point. The point is I don't, I, I owe them in some technical sense, but it's, it's purely a float, right? It's not a real, anyway. So that's one thing. Don't, you have to remember a lot of that debt isn't really, it is legally debt, but you get my point. Okay. That's one. The second thing, let's go to the consumer. Okay. Let's just take, Forget everything you know, and let me describe the consumer. Everybody who has a job, every, excuse me, everybody who wants a job has a job. Anybody who's thinking about getting a job can get a job. May not be the job of their dreams, but that's never been true. Okay? Especially for young people. Your first job was not the job of your dreams, right? Unless you had a lot of nightmares. So the the which some of you did. Um, but it was not the job of your dreams, but Anybody who wants a job has it. Anybody who wants to get a job knows there's a job out there for them. Their real wealth, real household wealth is up like 12% in real terms after inflation, up 12% versus pre-pandemic. That's like a 3%. The staggering thing on that is in Q4 last year, it was up
1: 7.5% in Q1 of this year was up 10.5 and in Q2 it's up 12.6%. And
0: And because just helps on growing. And the point is it's got bounces but come on. But what's driving that? Well, homes. Homes. Homes are driving because we don't have enough homes. Right. And that hurts. That helps renters, helps renting and single family renting. It helps because they have to wait longer to get a down payment, right? As home prices outstrip inflation. But you got a job. Your wealth is up. Your income has outstripped inflation since 2019. Um, so you've got a higher real income. Uh, what else? Uh, you got a mortgage as you talked about. Real cash. You have a staggering number. You got huge real cash versus 2019. 4. Down from the peak, but 4. still. $4.3 trillion dollars of real cash. Cash. Like cash cash. You've got... Um, you mentioned the people who've locked in their mortgages at low interest rate. Not everybody. But what's there to be upset about? Now, you say geopolitical? Of course. You say, and, and this goes back to something I think we talked about like two or three years ago. I you know probably two years ago on my 70th birthday. I think I had an lineman letter that said, "Gee, I'm 70. And if you look at all the problems that are out there, and I I made this list, you may recall, of all the headline problems that are out there. I said, you know, in my entire 70 years, you could have made a list every year of all the problems. And yet GDP grows, wealth grows, stock market goes up. Does it go up every day? No, it is, you know, and we always have a list. We always have a list. And your comments about Israel, I, I could not improve on or add to. But this is not the first time the Middle East has had problems. This is not the first time. This is not the first time. You can go across any problem in the world. It may not have been occurring then. It may not have been occurring to you, but it was occurring. So I have effectively a daughter in Germany, and we talk in the morning, and she's very concerned about the world situation. And I say, sweetheart, um, do you understand what was happening in um, 1943, where you live? Do you have any sense of what was going on then? And I, and I say, you know, my father in 1943 is wading ashore in the South Pacific, not for fun, not good. And by the way, you can go to China and you go back, you know, 25 years ago, they had no economy. They had no economy. Is China's economy got challenges? Yep. It had no economy prior to Deng Xiaoping. I was there in 86. They had nothing. India. India. Do they have a huge set of problems? Yeah. They have no economy 30 years ago. Now they have an economy with a lot of problems. They just had a lot of problems 30 years ago and no economy. And I'm not trying to be glib. I'm not trying to say things... By the way, uh, education system, education system is probably getting worse, but that's only since you guys have graduated. Um, Exactly. uh, But let's, one of the things,
1: as you run through that picture of the U.S. consumer, Peter, and you just ticked off all of them and it's super, it's, it's super strong. The one thing that is down from pre-pandemic to today is consumer confidence, And it's down by about 20 points. This is the Conference Board Consumer Confidence Index that you put in the linen letter. And I have to say, I sat there and I looked at all the data you put forth and I say to myself, wow, how is it that the consumer has less confidence today than they did in 2019, given the numbers you put in there?
0: Okay, you want me to give a glib answer? My glib answer is a year from now, we're probably going to be electing one or the other who are basically 80 years old.
1: My mind went back to that. It kind of go. No, my mind went back to the fact that in 2019, we had cut taxes. We were spending almost 5% of GDP in deficit spending. So it's a free lunch for everybody. And president Trump gave everyone a sense, whether you liked him or hated him, that we were kicking ass.
0: Well, and, you know, a lot of things happen. I think we are probably in a little... In in the arc of history, we're probably in a small doldrum uh, right now. I mean, there are big doldrums like World War II. That's more in a doldrum. And then there are small doldrums. And then there are, you know, right after the wall fell. That was the whatever the opposite of a doldrum is, right? It was kind of a good... And so the arc of history has those. But... Um, yeah, I. I but on
1: that, let me just go to one thing. You, you, you mentioned the wall. Let me go to 9 11 because yeah. many of my Jewish friends over the last couple of days have compared what happened over the weekend in Israel to 9 11 and the terrorist attack. If you think about the impact on the U.S. economy and the way we changed our lives post 9 11, does what happened in Israel over the weekend have the ability to have that long standing an impact?
0: Probably not. Because those of you who have spent a lot of time in Israel, they were already on a much heightened sense versus us. They've got political issues they got to deal with. There'll be issues coming out of that. As I talked to friends, the biggest thing that shocked is that the intelligence service didn't have much, uh, what? Um, heads up. Heads up. Yeah, and, and, that, and by the way, if you take it to, compared to 9-11, um, it was eighteen guys. okay, eighteen guys and, and we all said to ourselves it was horrific how did the intelligence services meant but it's eighteen guys. This was like well, what they believe a thousand two thousand people went through uh, tunnels and walls more or less simultaneously. you would think you'd like to believe that if 9 eleven had been two thousand guys, they might have picked something up right and that's disturbing, especially if you're on a hot seat and, and Israel is a geographic. So, um, yeah, I, we were back. the consumer confidence issue is it's down, but it's still above average, slightly, yep. still a slightly above average. Um, uh, there, there's there, there are plenty of things to be. Look well, you have in your canaries.
1: You, you, you put it out every every quarter. You yeah. have your canaries. Right now, you have nine out of 50 canaries. That's been static for the last year.
0: Yeah, not much has changed except the Fed gets stupider. Um, <laughs> well, and the reason they get stupider, I can't tell you the reason. The reason I say they get stupider is inflation has receded. Their own index shows that supply chain issues have massively fallen. I don't know why they're married to looking at year over year. So when do Uh, they get your message? When do they cut? um, Look, I've been wrong on, on uh, guessing them, right. Right. So uh, it's almost one of these games you stop playing, but, they should have cut i saw i was right as you know i was writing in december they should have been cutting rates and they wrote they they increased them twice right completely as inflation was by the way if interest rates were determinant of inflation please explain to me how for 8 years through the 2010s the short term rate was 0 and we did not have runaway inflation just the empiricist in you you don't have to do any economics, the empiricist in you would say, gee, if high inflation is supposed to be tamed by high rates, we must have had extraordinary. And by the way, that's, and, and it didn't. And there were a whole lot of reasons why. I mean, which is the point is it's nuanced. So... The well, forward curve says they cut in Q2 of next year. So the the problem, I was telling to somebody, you very don't smart guy. Next year? Uh, and I know you're throwing darts. I would say you're throwing darts yeah. with a blindfold on after you've been spun around. Right. Okay. <laughs> and I'm no better at that. And they need uh, to do that on our next, on our next. So break. be careful, we'll add up. We'll be careful out there. Be careful out right? If you made me say, I'd say the forward curve is not terribly wrong. The problem is the forward curve is Has always wrong. wrong. It's been always wrong. wrong since the beginning of this cycle. Well, and just go through history. You've got nothing better to rely on than the forward curve, but the forward curve is a terrible predictor. I I, I made the analogy yesterday to a client that it's like exchange rates. There's a very good theoretical model of the differential uh, of exchange rates, and it's an arbitrage theory. And the arbitrage theory simply says, gee, I could buy this currency or that currency, and therefore the difference should be the differential rate of inflation. And if I spent three minutes with you, you would all be convinced theoretically that's right. Never predicts. Right. Never predicts. And you go, I don't know why. That's because everything moves around so much. Right. And I think that's the problem with the forward curve. Everything moves around so much. There's a separate problem with the forward curve. And it happened in that period of eight and a half years, I mentioned, when the rate was zero. Um, There's a, there's an arbitrage condition on the long. And the long rate should incorporate expected inflation and so forth, but it also should arbitrage against the short rate. That is, the alternative is I just always roll the short rate forward and the arbitrage says the expected returns should be the same. Every time the Fed does something non-economic, and in the tens, it was keeping the rate really low. It pulls down the long rate because you say, oh, gee, if they kept it low for a quarter or two or three, but when they start keeping it low for four years, you start going, the arbitrage condition starts blowing. And I think the reverse is happening right now. The arbitrage condition is driving up because you can sit here and say, I believe they should, the it infalli- should be down. The long rate should be three and a half to four.
1: So as you look to 2024, do you think we get back to a normalized yield curve or do you stay, think it stays
0: inverted? It all depends how stupid they are. And therefore it's hard to predict, but, but all, if you put a gun to my head yeah. and, and you said there is a heaven and this is the determinant moment, I'd say it's going to be, the long rate will be down to four-ish yeah. uh, within 12 months. Why do I say that? I do the-, the and, and it's a normalized deal curve though, so short rates- And the short rates come down. And the reason I go there, let's go back to the PC. Now, I admitted the PC is the lowest, the core PC, but it was 1.3% annualized, right? So let's say it's two, two and a half. Yeah. If let's say two and a half, let's just play out two and a half percent inflation. And you say, how much higher should an overnight short-term rate be? on safe money. And you say, I don't know, 50 basis points, you know, some number, it's not that much at risk. So that gets you to three on the short rate. And then you say, what's the long rate? And the long rate should be 150 or so. Or 200. Maybe 200. In the old days, prior to the Soviet Union collapse, prior to Deng Xiaoping, um, it would be 200 to 300. Because of the amount of manufacturing in the economy? No, it was because there wasn't as much wealth in the world. So what happened when the wall fell? Let me just use that as the catch-all, including Deng Xiaoping and India and so forth and so on. People who had no money suddenly had money. And you know what they wanted to invest in? The same things we invested in. And that included U.S. Treasuries. So we didn't create so many more U.S. Treasuries when the wall fell but we suddenly had people competing for those bonds that never competed for it. So the spread, the normalized spread, went from 200 to 300 basis points over inflation to more like 150 to 200 over, simply because there's more people. By the way, if you wanna get your arms around what I'm saying, imagine that over the next 10 years, uh, Africa got as wealthy as China, okay? Just imagine. And by the way, when I was in China in 1986, the first time, they were much poorer than Africa today. Okay. So just kind of putting in context, what do you think would happen to treasury yields? They go down because if you've got a prosperous operating business in a country that's got high growth, you have got your wealth there and any money I can get here, literally here as my safe money, I'll do So And that that, bids
1: down the spread. So you've got a two and a half uh, uh, Fed funds rate. You got a 4% 10-year treasury. Yeah. Where's oil?
0: Oil, I think, has on a a trend lower. Uh We had the Saudi pushed it up. Yep. One of the things we know about cartels is they are very hard to maintain. That's one of the things you probably did learn useful in an economics class which is cartels can push up prices, but it's very hard to maintain because people cheat, right? And we're at like 60% of our daily usage
1: as far as manufacturing in the United States of oil. Yeah, yeah. So we're, if you will, 40% dependent on foreign oil.
0: Yeah, but we're not net-net. It's tricky, but we're we're kind of net-net neutral on oil. We're positive net on gas, natural gas. But not only do we have fracking, and you, people say, "Well, fracking is being discouraged by regulations," and I'm sure that's somewhat true. There's no doubt that we some just need refining capacity. Well, it's not but, so much getting more. But let's expensive. talk about Guyana. What's that? Let's talk about Guyana. Guyana has this huge oil find, and they're really poor. And you think they're going to be deferred from ex- pumping. pumping? And so let's say I'm just putting a scenario. I'm not saying it will happen. Let's just say we say nope. We're not going to allow any more oil production than currently exists in the United States. We're going to net zero change. I don't think that has a big effect over the next several years because, and not just Guyana. I mean, there's a the number it. of these countries, but Guyana, I mean, if you're in charge of Guyana, you're pumping as fast as you can, as much as you can. It's the only way forward in life. And we are rich enough that if we want to squander, we can squander. So two and a half percent
1: GDP growth is already in your number. Um, Do cap rates, there's a pretty significant disparity between private cap rates and public cap rates. Pick your asset class today. Mm -hmm. Do cap rates in the private sector need to move up to the public or do the public's move down to the private?
0: So this is one of these areas I've changed my view over a decade. So that means whatever I answer When you come back 10 years from now, you may get a different answer, right? 10 years ago, I would have said, if I had to place my bet, I'd bet on the public markets. As we sit here today, I'd place my bet on the private markets. And the reason is that I think the financial crisis changed the desire for mark-to-market assets and switched it much to the benefit of companies like Blackstone and Apollo, et cetera, to a preference for non-mark-to-market assets or not immediately mark-to-market assets. And and I think it occurred because the financial crisis happened in the fourth quarter of a year. If you were in public mark to mark assets, you got killed, you got fired, you didn't get a bonus. But if you were in a lot of private assets, that pain was spread over time. And a lot of the assets recovered in the meantime or bounced back somewhat and yes, you didn't get as big of a bonus, but got a bonus, so you're getting fired. And I think that is filtered through. And you've seen private money go way up across the board. And you saw public flows, IPOs, et cetera, go down, not just in real estate. And I think that that's fundamental. Um, you could argue if it's good or bad, but I think it's fundamental. So I think that the public markets are not so tightly linked. There's a, probably an arbitrage condition of some, but- it's an arbitrage with enough to offset, I don't want market, mark-to-market pricing. The other thing that happens, um, both public and private have problems. Right? The public's problem is it probably overstates value when people really want in, yep. and it probably understates them when people really want out. And for the normal holder, things never vacillate that much. I mean, most of us don't sell most days. Much to the chagrin of the New York Stock Exchange, but most of us don't sell everything every day, right? Um, Most of us are saying, okay, I guess I'm a buyer or I guess I'm holding on most days. And we're setting our own cap rate, if you will, right? The private markets just get big bid-ass spreads and a lack of transactions. And what you and others quote is the, it had to transact cap rate. But what it doesn't include, what are transactions in multi are down about 75%. Is that about right? We were off 81%. Of okay, 80%. 80%. eighty. Yeah, okay. Okay, so what you're quoting is the cap rate for 20% of normal. Right. You're not quoting the cap rate for 80% of normal. Right. And 80% of normal is saying that's not the cap rate. It's just not the cap rate. I mean, and if you blended those two, in other words, if you could go to the people who would have sold and gotten an honest answer, what do you believe the cap rate is? And you blended that in with what you sold at, cap rate would be much lower because 80% of the observations would be lower cap rates.
1: So if I'm sitting here today with an asset that I either am thinking about refining or about selling, I hear you say a year from now, I've got lower rates, and I've got lower cap rates. I don't do something today. I wait till tomorrow.
0: Or you try to get a flex program. You try to get some kind of flexible program where you convert into... The one thing you don't want to do is mature into a funky capital market. History has proven that. And so... So look in that crystal ball. What's a funky capital market? Well, I mean, don't take a a one-year... If you could get yeah. a three-year, right. I mean, I guess I'm saying, right? Um, F- does, does the election risk in 2024 concern you? Well, I'll be like whoever the president is at that point, so old that I won't be able to be concerned by anything. <laughs> um, <Okay. laughs> no, I, I, does the election concern me? I believe in, and I've, I've said this, I've lived as kind of back what I was saying, you know, we've had good presidents, bad presidents, good Congresses, bad Congresses. We've had high taxes, low taxes. We have a Republicans, Democrat, blah, 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 over my lifetime. And the one thing is we grow. We don't grow every minute, but we grow. And real estate's a long-term asset. I'm not being Pollyannish. It's a long-term asset. And I'm going to bet on that growth. And do you think we can
1: get our fiscal situation in, in, in control? Without a Speaker of the House, and obviously we're going to have a Speaker of the House at some point. Well,
0: there is an argument to be made if they're so busy fighting one when when Bill Clinton was when being, they're so busy fighting each other, the Biden administration can pass
1: a bill back stronger bill with 1.8 trillion dollars in it.
0: Yeah, there, there, I, I get it. Sorry, I get it. No, no, there is they weren't fighting enough. So what <laughs> you know? So we're I just got to shut them down. So I first had this quote insight when. President Clinton was being impeached. And I thought, this has got to be awful. And then I realized Congress was so happy beating up on him and defending him, they did nothing. And I'm I'm doing this from memory. I think the total cost of that was something like $300 defending him and attacking him. And I divided that by the population one day. And it cost all of us. it It was like $18. You could go to the movies. And it was just great entertainment value. Is the way I. One be. of the other things I put in the Lineman letter. You put in the Lineman letter
1: presidential popularity. And you watch that and you look at where Clinton went out of office.
0: Man, oh man, was he ever popular when he called it a day. It's like, well, I'll give you the equivalent of that. When I'm finished here today, yeah, there's going to be a big round of applause. There you go. But not because I was good, yeah, but because uh, I'm done. Because you're done. <laughs> you, got, you got to sort these things out. No, but right, politics so we to, matter. We got a minute and a half left. The last thing I say, politics matter, but not nearly as much as we talk about them. Not nearly as much. Your fourth grade school, you teacher are matters, but not
1: nearly as much. 35% of our GDP is spent by the government.
0: And you're telling me that that doesn't matter? It matters, but it doesn't change a whole lot it doesn't change by the way it changes who gets things boy the government I'll, is i'll not tell you all world. of our borrowers were watching a 482
1: 10-year last week come down to a 450 10-year certainly feel like janet yellen has a big play in
0: their world today um i'll i'll, I'll restrain myself um look does the government have some effect absolutely does the economy grow 2 to 3% a year because of the government or not? No. It might grow 20 basis points less a year, 30 basis. And then when you do that, you go, oh my God, that's 60 or $80 billion. Right. And if the 60 or $80 billion is your 60 or $80 billion, painful. But in the big sit picture, ruining 60 or $80 billion is nothing. Now, by the way, if you're Zimbabwe, it's everything. No, right. We're not Zimbabwe, we have the luxury. We all had really rich friends at one point in life that could do really stupid things and still survive, that you couldn't survive. We're that person. We're rich enough, thank God, that we can survive 20, 30, 50 billion dollar mistakes a year. Would we be better off if we didn't have those? Of course, but that's the world, that's the world.
1: And that's going to be the final word. Uh, Peter, thank you as always. Everyone here, thank you for joining us today. And everyone on the webcast, thank you for dialing in. We'll see you again next week and have a great day.